Well, the, the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, the one who traveled with Jesus. He was one of the twelve. Uh, he often referred to as the, the, the beloved or the one that Jesus loved uh, especially. This was the last of the Gospels to be written, and it's quite different from the other three Gospels. Remember, we talked about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and what kind of Gospels did we call them? The synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means same view. So they're very similar, same stories in, in, in many ways. But John is different. It doesn't mention, the Gospel of John does not mention the birth of Jesus. It doesn't mention his baptism. It doesn't mention his temptation by Satan. It doesn't mention the Last Supper. It doesn't mention Jesus praying in the garden or, or being arrested or taking prisoner in the Garden of Gethsemane. It doesn't mention his ascension. Why? Because John, writing at a later date, knew that all of this information had been covered by three other writers. So it gave him a certain amount of freedom to kind of pattern his gospel approach. Of course, it was under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he had a certain freedom to write about other things or to write about things that he considered needful at the time. Now, there are things that only John talks about in his gospel. Only John tells of Jesus at the wedding feast of Cana. That isn't found in the other three gospels. Only John talks about Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, the Pharisee where he told Nicodemus that you have to be born again. Only John talked about Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. And only John talked about the story of doubting Thomas after Jesus' resurrection. So John had a certain amount of freedom. We talked about how Mark, the first gospel writer, directed his gospel toward Christians at Rome. And then Matthew, his focus was Jewish believers. So he patterned his gospel toward them. And then Luke, who was the historian, he gave his gospel account in a general sense. It wasn't directed toward one group, it was directed toward all groups. Now we come to John. Now what was his approach going to be? How did the Holy Spirit inspire him to write a needful gospel at his time. Well, by the time John wrote, and many feel that that was maybe as late as 90 AD, so he, he was an old man by the time. By the time he wrote, the vast majority of Christians now came from not a Jewish background any longer, but from a Greek background. So how would the Holy Spirit inspire John to present Jesus to the Greek culture to help them to understand so that they could hear the gospel message and respond to it. Well, there are two things that the Greek people back in, in these days held in high esteem, two different concepts. And I'll have you turn to John chapter one. We'll begin reading there. The first concept that the Greeks held was something called logos, L-O-G-O-S. And logos means word or reason. Let me read a section here from uh, Barclay's commentary on the Gospel of John. He says, in Greek, logos means two things. It means word and it means reason. 
Jews were entirely familiar with the all-powerful word of God. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Greeks were entirely familiar with the thought of reason. They looked at this world. They saw a magnificent and dependable order. Night and day came with unfailing regularity. The year kept its seasons in unvarying course. The stars and the planets moved in their unaltering path. Nature had her unvarying laws. What produced this order? Greeks answered unhesitatingly, the Logos, the mind of God, is responsible for the majestic order of the world. They went on. What is it that gives human beings power to think, to reason, and to know? Again, they answered unhesitatingly, the Logos, the mind of God. Dwelling within an individual makes that person a thinking, rational being. John seized on this. It was in this way that he thought of Jesus. He said to the Greeks, all your lives you have been fascinated by this great guiding, controlling mind of God. The mind of God has come to earth in the man Jesus. Look at him and you see what the mind and thought of God are like. John had discovered a new category in which Greeks might think of Jesus, a category in which Jesus was presented as nothing less than God acting in human form. So here in John chapter 1, verse 1, how does John start out his gospel? He's not going to bring up genealogies, which the Greeks don't care about. He says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And that word carried profound meaning for the Greek mind. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the Holy Spirit inspired him to take this prominent concept in the Greek mind and to show how this thing that the Greeks felt kind of held the whole universe together and kept it running, he's going to show that this is the word of God. This is Jesus Christ. So the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. And of course we know in verse 14 he says, the word, the logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's interesting. This is a totally different approach used by John in his gospel than the other three writers used in their approach to other cultures. But John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew exactly the point to make right from the outset to tie Jesus, the Son of God, in with their concept of Logos, or the Word. Now, another concept that John used in speaking to the Greek people specifically, the Greeks also had another concept of two worlds. Let me read again from Barclays here. The Greeks had the conception of two worlds. The Greeks always conceived of two worlds. The one was the world in which we live, it was a wonderful world in its way, but a world of shadows and copies and unrealities. 
The other was the real world in which the great realities of which our earthly things are only a poor, pale copy stand forever. To the Greeks, the unseen world was the real one. The seen world in which we live was only a shadowy unreality. Plato, the Greek philosopher, systematized this way of thinking in his doctrine of forms or ideas. He held that in the unseen world, there was the perfect pattern of everything. And the things of this world were shadowy copies of these eternal patterns. To put it simply, Plato held that somewhere there was a perfect pattern of a table of which all earthly tables are inadequate copies. Somewhere there was a perfect pattern of the good and the beautiful of which all earthly goodness and earthly beauty are imperfect copies. And the great reality, the supreme idea, the pattern of all patterns and the form of all forms was God. The great problem was how to get into the world of reality, how to get out of our shadows into the eternal truths. John declares that that is what Jesus enables us to do. He is reality come to earth. So Jesus is the real light. Jesus is the real bread. Jesus is the real vine. Jesus is the real judgment. Jesus alone has reality in our world of shadows and imperfections. Something follows from that. Every action that Jesus did was therefore not only an act in time, but a window which allows us to see into reality. So that's another interesting concept. Only in John's Gospel do we find Jesus' seven I am statements. Let's turn here to uh, John 6, verse 35. Only in John's Gospel does he bring these things out. The other three Gospel writers overlooked this or, or, or didn't feel it was necessary for some reason. Jesus says in John 6, verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. So in other words, he is the real bread, the reality, okay? Whatever exists on earth is just a shadowy representation, an imperfect representation. In chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. So we all know light. We have lights going on in here, but Jesus is the true light. He is the real light. He is the perfect light that has been brought to this earth for our benefit. In John 10, verse 7, he talks about how he is the gate for the sheep. In other words, he is the way for us to enter into heaven and eternal life. That's John 10, verses 7 through 11. He is the real gate, in other words. So the reason John is using these titles for Jesus, where Jesus kept saying, I am this, he is trying to approach the Greek culture and help them to understand that, yeah, I understand what you think. There's two worlds. We live in this shadowy world of imperfection, but there's a real world that exists. We can't see it, but it, it's there, and it's God's dwelling place and his domain. Well, when Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth, when the Word, the Logos, came to this earth, he brought the reality of what we only see on this earth as imperfections. He's the real deal. He's the real representation. So J Jesus also said that he is the good, he said, I am the good shepherd. 
So he's the perfect shepherd. He's the real shepherd, okay, of which pastors like me are only a shadowy representation. He is the good shepherd, the perfect shepherd. John 10, verses 11 through 15. Jesus also said, I am the resurrection and the life. So he is the real life. What we're experiencing here on earth, we consider it to be real, but you know, it only lasts so long. Our bodies grow old and, and weak and, and sickly and, and we eventually die. So much for this physical life. But he is the real life, okay? And he brought that real life, that eternal life to this earth to bless us with it if we believe in him, if we look to him as our savior. So resurrection and life, that's John 11, verses 23 through 26. Then Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, verses 1 through 6. So he's not just a way, he is the, the way, the truth, and the life. He represents the reality of that other world that the Greeks kind of knew about, knew existed. He's bringing it here so that we can participate. And finally, he said in John 15, verse 5, I am the true vine, the real vine, and how we need to stay connected to him. We need to abide in him. So John portrays Jesus to reach the Greek mind, because this is the way they looked at things, as these two worlds, the shadowy world in which we live, but somewhere there's a better world, there's a real world. Jesus was the one who brought that to us. And he is the one through, through whom we will eventually participate in and experience that real world. And that is God's domain. That is eternal life with God. And the only way that we can have it is through Jesus Christ. So those are two things to consider when we read the Gospel of John. The way he starts out with his gospel talking about the word. Well, what's that all about? Well, that was to address the Greek mind and the things that they were thinking, the things that their philosophers taught. And he was explaining that this reason or this word, this logos, is actually Jesus Christ. And the Father sent him to this earth. And he's the one who not only created everything, but he's the one who holds the whole universe in perfect balance and keeps it running and keeps it operating. And then we saw, too, that uh, Jesus, out of the two worlds that Greeks thought about, he is the one who came from the real world, reality, who came into our shadow, shadowy existence, and he brought all the good things of God that we can ultimately share in. Now, another thing to consider as we read the Gospel of John and the time in which he wrote. You know, the other three Gospel writers wrote several decades earlier, perhaps in the 50s or, or 60s AD. John wrote his Gospel perhaps as late as 90 AD, maybe 30 years later. And by the time John wrote his Gospel, things had changed. Theologies and creeds were being thought out and, and stated and, you know, creeds, as far as what do we believe in as Christians, there's the Apostles' Creed and some of the Nicene Creeds and the Laodicean Creed. Uh, invariably, some wrong thoughts were being brought out. 
People were reasoning about God. Well, who was this Jesus Christ? And what exactly did he do? What was his purpose in coming here to earth? Christian leaders were trying to think these, th think these things out and come up with creeds that we can write out and, and believe in and say, this is what we believe. Unfortunately, some heresies entered in at this time. And there were two main heresies at the time John wrote his gospel that he had to deal with. So he gives specific importance to a couple of uh, things that I'd like you to consider. First of all, the first uh, heresy that existed when John wrote his, his gospel was what I'll call the cult of John the Baptist. The cult of John the Baptist. Now we know that John the Baptist was a very good man. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. He prepared the way for Jesus. He went around baptizing people and preaching to them the, uh, the message of repentance. And Jesus really complimented John the Baptist and said there's no finer man born of women than John the Baptist. But there were certain Christians, especially Christians who came out of Judaism, who gave too high a place to John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus, and he did that. But when Jesus came along, there were some Christians who couldn't let go of John the Baptist. There was something about him that had a strong appeal, especially to the people who came out of Judaism. And let's look at uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 1. You know, John the Baptist spoke with a, a, a very powerful prophet's voice. He had a lot of charisma. And when it came to letting go of him and following Jesus, some people had a problem. So John actually addresses this in his gospel, believe it or not. In Acts chapter 19 and in verse 1, here's an example. It says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? Well, John's baptism, John the Baptist. They replied, Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 in all. So here's one of the little groups of people who could not let go of John the Baptist. All they were were people who were baptized by John the Baptist. And when it came to Jesus, they were clueless. So they had to be taught. Now let's go back to the Gospel of John and see some of the things that John said about John the Baptist. He's the only Gospel writer who uses examples showing that John the Baptist was a fine man, but there comes a time to let go of him and to believe in Jesus. So he keeps talking about the preeminence of Jesus and kind of puts John the Baptist in his place. John 1 verse 6. It says here, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, Jesus, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light, 
okay? John the Baptist was not the Son of God. He was not the Messiah. He only came to prepare the way for the Messiah. So John, unlike all the other gospel writers, keeps drilling this point in. John the Baptist was a fine guy, but it was Jesus that he was pointing to. And once Jesus comes, you got to look to Jesus for your salvation. He's the Messiah. He is greater. So he says in verse 8, He, John the Baptist himself, was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And that was Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 19. Now this was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. So John in his gospel has to make a point of, of John the Baptist kind of humbling himself and saying, you know, God gave me a job to do, I've done it, but I'm not the one you should be looking for. It's another guy. It's somebody else. I'm not he. Notice in verse 27. John the Baptist says, He is the one, Jesus, who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So, verse 28, This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. So continually, John in his gospel, because of this heresy going on at the time, the, I won't say the worship of John the Baptist, but a failure to let go of him and follow Jesus. So he has to keep kind of harping on this. Notice John 5, verse 36. John 5, verse 36, he does it again. Here's Jesus speaking. Notice what he says. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. So there's no criticism of John the Baptist on the part of, of Jesus in this gospel, but there is a rebuke to those who would give him a place which ought to belong to Jesus alone. So again, that's why John talks so often of these things, why he makes this a point. John the Baptist was a great man, but someone else has come, and you follow him. You let go of John the Baptist. His, his work has been completed. So that was the first heresy that John, the uh, gospel writer John had to deal with. The prolonged, overly respectful attitude toward John the Baptist. And the second heresy that had arisen by this time that John had to address in his gospel was something called Gnosticism. You've heard of that word before. It starts with a G, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. It comes from a word that means knowledge. And by this time in the church, and I think to a certain extent, this still exists in, in the church, down through the ages, down through the centuries, Gnosticism. It's all about knowledge. And people think that it's not just a matter of knowledge of the Bible, but it's whatever knowledge that they can kind of come up with, their own reasoning, their own thinking. 
And when you fail to let God's word be your sole source of knowledge, uh, you're opening the door for problems. And you're going to get confused. That's why, you know, when I talk to, to people who want to become Christians, I talk about the importance of reading the Bible and using it as a source book for your life. And, uh, you know, the Bible addresses most situations in life. At least it gives the principles on how to deal with certain things that we face today. You know, I can say, look to the Bible for answers, and somebody will say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about cell phones, does it? Or the Bible doesn't talk about smoking, does it? Well, not specifically, but it gives principles, you know, as far as, you know, your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. So should you really do things that are going to damage or harm your body, uh, smoking or using illicit drugs or whatever the case may be? So the Bible has to be our source for knowledge. Uh, when it comes to Gnosticism, you know, people were looking at in other areas for knowledge to kind of add to their Bible knowledge. And this kind of knowledge was not God-ordained knowledge. It was wrong knowledge. And that opened the door for a lot of heresies to begin in the church. And as I said, at this time of John's writing the gospel, people were wondering, again, well, who was this Jesus who lived so long ago? And what exactly was he? What was his purpose? Gnosticism taught a couple of things that I'd like to discuss here. First of all, Gnosticism taught that anything that is physical is automatically evil. Now, that's not in the Bible, but that's one of these crazy harebrained ideas that anything that is physical is automatically evil. Only that which is spiritual can be good. Therefore, God certainly couldn't become physical, could he? <laughs> See the wrong reasoning there. So when it came to who was Jesus, you know, we believe, and the Bible teaches that he was fully God and fully man. Okay, he actually had two natures, fully God and fully man. Gnostics taught he could not have become man because physical human beings are evil and God can't become evil. So they rejected Jesus coming in the flesh. But notice, as John said in, in the beginning of his, his gospel account, he said the, this word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 3. You know, Jesus, as the creator, created all things. He created the physical universe. He created the physical earth. So the Bible says that there is no thing like this, that everything that is physical is evil. And only spiritual can be good. Jesus was a mixture of natures, fully God and fully human. So another belief was that not only was you know, Jesus not able to become human, others in Gnosticism felt that Jesus wasn't really divine. He wasn't really God. But John continues to stress Jesus' divinity and his dual nature, his being fully God and fully man. In John 17, verse 5, he quotes Jesus as praying to God the Father and saying, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence 
with the glory I had with you before the world began. So John in his gospel, he's unique in that he stresses Jesus' humanity and he stresses Jesus' divinity. He talks about Jesus in ways that none of the other gospel writers talk about. He talks about Jesus becoming angry with the money changers in the temple. John alone does that. So he stresses Jesus was human. Not only was he the son of God and divine, but he was also human and he was susceptible to getting angry. It talked about how he got physically tired and when the apostles were with him in the boat, he fell asleep because he was worn out and he was exhausted. He got hungry and thirsty. He knew grief and he even wept at, at one point in the gospel. So John saw that heresies were confusing people's minds about who Jesus was. So he went out of his way to portray Jesus in a way that he was fully divine and he was fully human. He had two natures. So John had the freedom, like I said, to look around him, to look at the culture that he was addressing, and to meet them on their terms, to present Jesus Christ not as a Jewish Messiah, because the Greeks didn't care about that. He took one of the most prominent concepts in their minds, the concept of logos, the concept of two worlds existing, and he showed how Jesus fulfilled that concept that he as the son of God was the word of God sent from the perfect location where reality exists where God dwells and he brought it down to earth to share it with us so that we could participate in it and he also addressed the heresies that were rampant at the time of his writing and he felt since the other three gospel writers already told the story pretty much all the dates and the uh, the family tree of Jesus and you know what happened here and what happened there his approach was totally different very effective though the synoptics all begin with Jesus the man his genealogy his birth etc and go on to prove his divinity their perspective is from below upward but John's perspective is from above downward he starts with the word who was God was with God and was God, and he proceeds to the word becoming human. The synoptics tell us this Jesus is God, while John says this God became Jesus. He is God in human flesh. Jesus is God placing himself on human display. God himself has come to our rescue. So hopefully that clarifies a little bit about why John's gospel is different. And... Uh, why John took the approach that he did. It had to do with the culture that he was addressing. It had to do with some of the beliefs that were extant around the time of uh, his writing, which was much later than the other three Gospels. But, uh, you know, John, when he talks about Jesus, he records not just short snippets of what Jesus said, but he alone talks about long conversations between Jesus and his father. John chapter 14, John chapter 15, 16, 17, just before his death, 
long extended conversations by Jesus and his father. And it's just really tremendous because it draws us into Jesus' mind and also into the mind of the father. When we could read and understand the things that they were discussing, especially when they were talking about us and our future. When Jesus said, you know, I know your father, you're not gonna take them out of the world. You're gonna allow them to stay in the world but you're gonna be with them in the world. You're not gonna leave them or forsake them. That really holds true for us as we come to understand more deeply our relationship with Jesus and with God the Father. So what a beautiful blessing we have of three, you know, synoptic gospels plus one gospel by John. And uh, we can read all four of them now with kind of a different background and a different viewpoint and understand why they wrote the things that they did and uh, the audiences that they were addressing, but all of them are beneficial for us all. So uh, now all we have to do is read them. <laughs> so let's close with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for these four beautiful gospel accounts. And as we read them now with a little bit more understanding, we see the brilliance of the Holy Spirit as he inspired these men to write what they wrote at the time that they wrote it, directing their comments, knowing their audiences well. And that's why these four gospels have been very effective and have led to literally billions of people becoming Christians and becoming followers of Jesus Christ. So Father, we thank you that we have been included in this, that you have given us the understanding as we've read the gospels to make it real to us, to reach us, to hit us where we live so that we can relate to these gospel messages and learn from them and be inspired by them. So, Father, you're just magnificent in your approach with your word. And uh, it is a beautiful gift and a precious gift that you've given us all. And uh, we just ask you to help us to put it to use in our lives. So thank you, Father. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>